So um, <clears throat> really, uh, as pastor for the last um, five years or so, but particularly the last couple years, um, man, there's been a lot of intense um, division. Not just here. I mean, I feel like here there's been uh, parts of that for sure that we've felt, but certainly in Christ's church over the last several years, um, there has been much division in the church. In this room, certainly we've had debates over best practices regarded to COVID and politics and who to vote for, all in this room. Even in the last several weeks, the best ways and practices in regards to uh, Roe versus Wade, racial sin, um, and racism, all of those things and views occupy this very room. And all of those things make us ripe for division, like our own culture, polarized in different ways, ripe for doing our own thing. And so the questions this morning is, what do believers in Jesus do with such disagreements about disputable matter, matters? In verse 1, Paul says to us, quarreling over opinions. Do not quarrel over opinions. So how do we disagree in godly ways over these non-essentials? Non-essentials, not Jesus dying for sinners, not the, the veracity of Jesus' resurrection, not Jesus as the only way to God, not justification by faith alone through grace alone. Paul has been unpacking that gift of grace offered to us as enemies of God, how God justifies us as sinners, saves us, and redeems us. Those essential matters are what we've been marching through in this book. Now here, Paul is talking about non-essentials. Eating, drinking, days of the week, disputable things. Things related to what we might call Christian liberty. Things that are a matter of conscience. Things that all of us might have opinions about. And Paul is throwing this under the umbrella of what he's talked about in chapters 12 and 13. How do we respond to the gift of grace offered to us in this gospel that Paul has been preaching? By offering our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God. Part of our offering of our bodies then, chapter 13, is living out the debt of love. Paul says, let the debt of love remain outstanding. Make yourselves indebted to and obligated to love. And who is that that you are to love? Well, it's your neighbor, your enemy, your community of faith. The debt of love isn't a debtor's ethic, you seeking to repay your debt to Christ by being loving to others as much as a credit card without limits so you can love. You get to love. And so here in 14 and 15, Paul gives a case study, a case study in the church of Rome, an example of how the debt of love is to be maxed out. And how is that? Well, by welcoming one another and not quarreling. This passage, verse 14.1, to the end of the section, verse 15.7, is framed by two imperatives. Welcome the one who is weak in the faith, and don't quarrel over opinions or disputable things, and therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. 
Now, this week serves as an introduction to this section, and next week we will do a deeper dive on the weak and the following week on the strong. But here, Paul, after framing this section with those two imperatives of welcoming, making room, accepting one another, then comes to dealing with indicatives. Now, we've talked about these moods in the book of uh, Romans. It's almost like chapters 1 through 11 major in the indicative mood. That is a statement about the way things are. And then 12 and through 15, the mood changes to imperative based on the way things are now go and do. But here, our passage starts with the imperative and then reverts back to indicative, how things are. So today we're going to look at this passage in two ways, reflecting on this indicative mood, the ways things are. First, Christians disagree. And second, Christians have the same Lord. First, Christians disagree. In verse 1, Paul says, don't quarrel over opinions. Now, you may have heard a crass version of this, but opinions are like armpits. Everyone has one. Now, Paul isn't naive about the church. I mean, think about where he's been prior to writing this letter to the church in Rome. He's been to Galatia and Corinth, both living in the land of disputes. In the church of Galatia, quarreling was not just over opinions, but over essential matters, over the gospel. And in Corinth, more in line with in Rome, disputable ones, but from a different kind of origination point. Here in Rome, we have churches that meet in apartments on the outskirts of the city. These apartments are grouped together, and there's often a larger one which might have a large room or courtyard. Here, the host would welcome a group of believers. For instance, Rufus, who Paul speaks about in chapter 16, is thought to be one of these house church hosts. And they gather, people gather in several of these across the groupings of apartments on the outskirts of Rome. House churches. That's to whom Paul is writing this letter. And Phoebe has come and is reading this letter from Paul in each of these places. And these house churches are made up of, as we've been talking about, Jew and Gentile converts. The Jews, remember, were expelled for five years during the reign of the Emperor Claudius. Now, perhaps prior to this expulsion, these Jews were leaders of this would-be church. This would make sense based on what happened during Peter's preaching at Pentecost, how Jews and God-fearing Gentiles had gathered, heard Peter preach, and were converted through the word, the Spirit descending upon them, and then they were sent out and returned to their homes in Antioch and Asia Minor and Greece and even Rome. These Jewish converts then lived a life that was still somewhat connected to their roots. The traditions and the feasts, the ways of eating and drinking were still a part of their lives and homes. Now, some of you know this. You've experienced this. You were converted later in life. You understand the pool of family tradition or maybe even previous faith traditions on your life. These Jewish converts lived out of some of these Traditions, devoted still, even following the Jesus way, devoted still to strict observances and clear boundaries, even as they follow the risen Jesus. And can you imagine the working out of such things? What traditions should remain? What should be cast aside? What still aligns with this newfound faith? And what's incongruent? This was not an easy thing. 
These matters weren't faddish. They weren't just like some form of overzealous piety. They were for the Jews who were converted about covenant loyalty, how to be faithful to their God. And much of these decisions felt for them a life or death issue. Now imagine these early Jewish converts and leaders who had been working these things out for over 10 years in these house churches on the outskirts of Rome are suddenly deported, kicked out, sent outside the city limits. And Gentiles, the Roman citizens or the Gentile servants who lived in Rome and worked in Rome were converted by these very Jewish converts And now they are thrust into the position of leading this young, would-be church. And for five years, these churches would grow, taking on more and more Gentile converts, many of which would not practice any of the Jewish feast, not even Passover. Sabbath-keeping would be this entirely new idea. Foods such as pork and meat offered to idols would just be a part of everyday life, something not even given a second thought to. In fact, pork was probably a regular staple of the Roman diet. This church that had scruples to certain aspects of Roman life and convictions about keeping other important Jewish feast days had now flipped. And now those same Jewish Christians suddenly return. And life in the church looks different. Additionally, these people lived in the same apartment complexes. Overlap, unlike us, who live all over this city, overlap was everywhere. Work, the market, church, neighborhood. They lived and worked and played in close proximity, and traditions were lived out in full view. Convictions played out in everyday gatherings. Rufus has a courtyard. A table fellowship meal is spread. And on the table are assorted meats and wine. And maybe the day comes for the Feast of Booths. And the Jewish Christians enact a festival with fasting and then feasting. But their Roman neighbors, also Christians, do nothing. So the debate would begin. And those debates in the church of Rome were over diet and days. We see this in verses 2 and 3. One person can eat anything, the other only vegetables. One person despises the one who abstains, and one person passes judgment on the one who eats. And then in verse 6, one person esteems one day as better than another, and the other esteems all days as alike. Diet and days. This is what's producing disagreement. Christians disagree. And disagreements might lead to quarreling. Debates would spring up after a worship service, after communion and the common meal. Someone might decide they need to leave the building immediately after worship because they would not be subjected to pork being present on a table at a common meal. Additionally, there was probably the added layer of this. Many Jews who refrained from pork just didn't eat meat at all. They were vegetarians because that was all they could eat, all that was available for them to eat. In fact, before they were banished from the city of Rome, Jews were restricted and blocked from buying meat in the public square. They were also most likely during the reign of Nero kept from it on their return. 
So this becomes not just a point of what they want to eat and not, but a point of persecution. And, by the way, a way to accentuate their difference from the pagans who made up Rome. It was a badge of difference. I'm a Jewish Christian, therefore I don't eat meat. Because at one point I couldn't. I don't eat pork anyway, so I became a vegetarian. So the lines of division were drawn often in this church by ethnic lines because of these wider cultural issues. Attached to this was their suspicions about idolatry. The Gentile world was full of idols. The temptation that led Israel astray was adopting practices of adulterous worship. This was the water that they swam in. So it creates clear lines of delineation. To protect oneself from adultery and adulterous worship would be to have a settled conviction about meat and wine offered to idols to have clear practices that connected their Christian faith to the history of their faith, namely keeping Sabbath and keeping Jewish feast. Family customs would be built into this as well. All of this was to rid one of some of the temptations they might face in their day. And the danger is that the weak, that's how Paul would label these Jewish Christians, would insist that God's people were marked out, set apart by their abstentions and observances. They would look on their Christian Gentile neighbors with judgment because they are not as devout as them. They let their kids eat that. They don't hold feast or Passover. Like Passover is just another day? How can that be? Don't you see how that The Passover connects our story, the story of God's people. It's the greatest moment of rescue prior to Jesus. Why would you not do that? What do you mean you you drink and you eat that? I can't believe they had a party with meat that a butcher that has set up a shrine to Apollo. And they offered that to us. Aren't they concerned about how that could lead to idolatry? Some others would think that these convictions were insignificant or not even relevant to following Jesus as the crucified and risen Lord. I mean, I love the story. I believe in God who did this act, and Jesus has rescued us in even a greater way than Passover. So why should we practice what seems to be type and shadow? And also the apostles told us we could eat and drink anything, that nothing is unlawful for us. Don't you think that This is a stumbling block to my Roman friends and neighbors. I mean, none of this was commanded by Paul. Rufus leads our local community, and he certainly doesn't think this is a big deal. All our friends eat pork and drink wine. If we're going to reach them with the gospel of King Jesus, how would we not do this as well? These strong ones, then, would put their freedoms ahead of their weaker Christian brothers and sisters and look upon them with disdain. They would talk past each other. They would make inferences. If you're saying that, then you're surely saying this. We don't relate, do we? So then the question would be, what parts of the law do we observe? Law keeping is not the way to acceptance before God or others, but we did talk about a couple weeks ago about how the law is made for love. Law-keeping for a Christian is a way to love a community, our neighbors, our enemies. But is forcing one to observe days and feast and food and drink regulations a way to love them? 
I mean, if it keeps them from idolatry, then yes, perhaps. If it helps them to continue to follow the risen Jesus and be a witness, maybe. But the argument could be flipped the other way as well. Abstaining could be viewed as something that would be a failure of contextualization or mission. The loss of Christian freedom could mean that one is closer to thinking that righteousness depends on them and not on Christ. And one's fidelity to religious tradition, that could create unnecessary boundaries to those outside the church. This is what's happening in this church at Rome. They are quarreling. There's disagreement. And those fights lead to a lack of fellowship. It leads to disgust and to judgment. My seminary professor, Sinclair Ferguson, says the weak brother or sister is the one who has a strong conscience. They are sensitive to do the right thing, willing to do the hard thing for the sake of their consciences. And the strong brother or sister has an instructive conscience. The conscience is affected by the fall and the conscience might be misinformed, but their consciences are being being, uh, instructed by the word and the spirit. If you tend to have a very strong conscience, sensitive about doing the right thing, then you might be considered weak. And if you have a more instructive conscience, comfortable with nuance, then Paul might consider you strong. Now, what is hard about this, when I say those terms, what do you think of? Like weak seems worse. Strong seems better. But that's not what Paul is doing here. It's not qualitative. It's not a quality of faith assessment. Paul makes no such statements. For Paul, is, it's truly, these things are truly a matter of Christian freedom and conscience. And it is acceptable for brothers and sisters to be weak and or strong. These are acceptable places for Christians to disagree. I mean, we all disagree. In the closest relationships that we have, I want you to think about those. What kind of disagreements have existed in those closest relationships just this week? Many. A plethora, whether it's between siblings or couples or parents and children or between friends and neighbors or greater uh, families or work colleagues, disagreements are everywhere and Christians disagree. Now, your family might do it openly and loudly like my family would do or they might do it quietly or not at all like Danette's family would do. They might do it passively or even passively aggressively. But no, make no mistake, there are disagreements. And this place of disagreement is not, according to Paul, to lead to fighting and quarreling. Now Paul will say to Timothy in his letter to his young Padawan that quarreling is not to be the mark of an elder. Being a fighter, letting disputable matters become essential matters. Now this is always a struggle. Our consciences are pricked by our scruples and our freedoms. Do you see this? And we then want to set up boundaries for who's in and who's out based on either our scruples or our freedoms. And then we fight about it. We are pugnacious pugilists. We are Doc Holliday's going out always to pick a fight. And this is the line for Paul. Now Christians will disagree, but Christians don't quarrel. And the difference is the two words, despise and judge. Quarreling 
leads to judgment and disgust. Now notice what Paul does here. What he does is he holds up the indicative. You and I, the strong or the weak, whatever we might be, what? Have the same Lord. Paul wants the church to know that we might all disagree, but we have the same Lord. If there's two implications to this, by the way. If you have a Lord or a master, implication one is all of life is lived towards him. And the second thing, if our Lord is truly our judge, we aren't the judge. So first, all life is lived to the Lord. Look at verses four, uh, six, and seven. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master, Lord, that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Verse 6, the one who observes days observes it in honor of who? The Lord. And the one who eats, eats in honor of who? The Lord. And the one who abstains, abstains in honor of who? The Lord. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. Verse 8, for if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Paul over and over again stresses, no matter what the points of disagreement might be, no matter what the POVs are on the faithful Christian life, they are all done in view of the Lord, who is our master, our savior, and our king. In other words, make no mistake, our lives are orientated around the center, and the center is the Lord. And that center holds. Even amidst our disagreements, what Paul is saying to us as the church, no matter what disagreements we have in this room, and they can be plenty and plethora, and we've seen them over the last five or six years, how those disagreements play out in conversations, in city groups, and in get-togethers, and here and there. We all have opinions about non-essential things. But Paul's point is, if we are the Lord's, if he is our master, then all of our lives and all that we do and all that we say and all that we believe and all that we treat one another is centered on the Lord because he is our judge. You see, Jesus came to disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. How does the fact that the Lord is our judge disturb us? Look at verse 9. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. One consequence of Jesus rising from the dead and ascending into heaven is that he is both king and Lord of everything and everyone. And what does that mean for us? I love this from the message. This is how Eugene Peterson says uh, this verse. That's why Jesus lived and died and lived again, so that he could be our master across the entire range of life and death. And hear this, and free us from the petty tyrannies of each other. The petty tyrannies of each other. Friends, Jesus has freed you and I from such petty tyrannies, right? What is a tyrant? 
A tyrant is one who thinks they are the Lord and then enforces their lordship on others by judging and disdaining them. Here, Paul says Jesus, because he's the actual Lord and he's ascended into heaven, he's the king, he's freed you from such things. So it's important for us as the church to put the emphasis on the correct syllable, namely Jesus. Look at verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord uh, God, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. That's sobering language, friends. God is the judge and not you. You are brothers and sisters who belong to the family of God, and God is the judge to whom we all will appear. Jesus, because he has been resurrected and ascended as Lord and King, will judge us. Now, if you're in Christ, you won't be condemned, but you will give an account. Our lives will be put on the jumbotron, and that will humble us. But in that moment... Brian Hagbig says, the work of Christ will wash over us. This is what Paul alludes to in verse 4. Before the master we stand or fall. But if he stands, it is the Lord who makes him stand. This is what will happen in judgment. We will stand before the judgment seat and we will only stand because God has grabbed hold of us and welcomed us in Christ. And Christ our Lord is able to make us stand in such a moment. And this, Jesus, Paul says, has welcomed us. Verse 3. This is why we uh, are welcomed. This is why we don't despise or judge, but welcome our brothers and sisters who we have disagreements with. He has taken hold of us. I love this picture that Brian gives of arm grabbers. He describes his family as a family of arm grabbers. Now, me and Danette, sometimes we can like, fictitiously, so to speak, grab each other's arms when we say, can you believe that? Grab each other's arms in kind of a a sense of judgment over someone else or some other thing. It's easy to do that, right? Well, Brian describes it like this. He describes his family as a family of arm grabbers. He noticed that in family pictures, that all the women in the family and family pictures were grabbing arms. And he said, we come from a family of arm grabbers. This is what Jesus does. He takes hold of us, accepts us, makes room for us. And when we die, we don't go to some generic heaven. He grabs hold of us and brings us to himself and receives us. And we are upheld in the moment of judgment. As all our works are weighed, we are upheld and made to stand Because Jesus has grabbed hold of us. And because he stands, we stand. And when all the things come out, he will make us stand. Oh, what a savior 
Jesus is. This is why every knee will bow before him, even as each of us give an account. Now let's end with a few points of application for us this morning. Leon Morris, a commentator, says, a reminder of the judgment we all face is a fitting conclusion to this stage of the discussion. The fact that each of us will render an account for himself, hear this, leaves no room for despising or judging others. Jesus is Lord of the weak. The teetotaling, Sabbatarian keeping, vegan Jew, and the strong. The wine-sipping, Saturday-shopping, bacon-munching Gentiles. If God has justified them, we cannot condemn them. If God has raised them up, they cannot put each other down. If they belong to the Lord, they belong to each other. And if everyone calls him Lord, they must call each other brothers and sisters. And if God has accepted them, they must accept each other. And if they share the same faith, they must share the same table. As N.T. Wright puts it, justification by faith entails fellowship by faith. This is what justification by faith looks like when it sits down at the table of Christian community amongst difference together. If you've come to different conclusions than your brother or your sister on disputable matters and you despise or pass judgment on your brother and, and, or sister, this means you are to stop and repent and seek reconciliation. Friends, this is not easy. My buddy Greg, who's here, who's part of my, one of my best friends, we sat at Bosky Brewery talking about hard things and people in our beloved PCA denomination. And I found myself this morning cut to the quick about my own judging and despising. Second thing, this means that there are no lone wolves. There's only one flock and only one shepherd. Separation from the Lord's body by isolating yourself from other servants of the Lord over these kind of disagreements is incongruent to being part of the body of Christ. We, church, congregate in imperfection. There's no other area of our life as well that can be compartmentalized from the Lord's authority. I want you to hear that this morning because I know the temptation for us is to live multiple lives. Some of you in this room are doing that, even as you sit here. You have a secret life that you think can be kept from the Lord. Work, play, public life, private life, your money your family, your screen time, your food, your vacations, your sports are all lived before the one Lord Jesus. What we eat, what we drink, what we think, and the people we greet are all subjugated to the Lord. If he's not Lord of all that, then he's not Lord at all. The challenge of this is ordering our lives in ways 
that submit to the Lord. Third, we must not judge others if we are the Lord's. In matters of dispute, there is liberty, and the Lord alone it will judge. There are hills to die on, and there are ones not to die on. And Jesus is Lord over both. We cannot be people who condemn over secondary issues, or what we try to do is pull secondary issues into essential ones. This is the work of our day, friends. The church is constantly at battle trying to say, you must be this non-essential thing in order to be a Christian. And the world is happy to oblige that quarreling by offering many ways for us to make non-essential things essential. And as Christians, we must have wisdom to know the difference between what is essential and what is not. And the temptation for you and I will always be to make it essential. I'll talk more about some of that stuff in the weeks to come. Lastly, what shows forth the preeminence of the Lord? Pursuing unity with each other. Jesus is Lord of both Jew and Gentile. 10, 12, Paul says. What do we confess? 10, 9, Jesus is the Lord. It is an essential element of the church's witness. N.T. Wright says, if the church divides along lines related to ethnic or tribal loyalties, it's still living in the world of Caesar and not Jesus. Friends, unity isn't a take-it-or-leave-it option. Here's what Spurgeon says, and we'll close with this. The term Jesus our Lord seems to draw a circle around all the elect of God. The whole host of the redeemed out of every nation, kindred, tribe, tongue, people, land, in every age. It seems to remind me, Spurgeon says, of a kind of clanship which exists among believers. Just as the old highland clansmen when they saw the head of the clan, all felt intense enthusiasm at the very sight of him. For he was the great sinner, the meeting place of all the divers' families in the clan. And with him leading, they rushed forward to victory or death with the utmost enthusiasm. So when I look you in the face, beloved, we may differ very greatly in station, in ability, in a thousand things. But your Lord is my Lord. So we are brothers and sisters in him. And we clasp hands around him and say, Jesus, our Lord. And when you do, you grab hold by the arm, your brother and sister, and you clasp arms around him. And you make room for them. And they accept you just as Christ has welcomed and accepted you. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that it is in you that we truly do stand. All of us would melt. Like Isaiah, be undone at the sight of the Lord if it were not for Christ. If not for him grabbing hold of us, 
grabbing hold of our arms, welcoming us, inviting us into the circle of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we would be melted before your judgment seat. But because of Christ, we stand. Not only we stand, we are invited in to a circle that is centuries old, millennium old. With other believers, we lock arms around Jesus as Lord. So Father, we praise you for our Savior who grabs hold of us and welcomes us and makes us stand. And we pray that you would transfuse us with the lifeblood of Jesus and his spirit so that we might be a people who lock arms with those we find a difference with. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.